Chapter 3 of The Soul of the Indian by Charles A. Eastman, Oyasa. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Ceremonial and Symbolic Worship Modern Perversions of Early Religious Rites The Sundance, The Great Medicine Lodge, Totems and Charms, The Vapor Bath, and The Ceremonial of the Pipe. The public religious rites of the Plains Indians are few and in large part of modern origin belonging properly to the so-called transition period. That period must be held to begin with the first insidious effect upon their manners and customs of contact with the dominant race, and many of the tribes were so influenced long before they ceased to lead the nomadic life. The fur traders, the black-robed priests, the military and finally the Protestant missionaries were the men who began the disintegration of the Indian nations and the overthrow of their religion seventy-five to a hundred years before they were forced to enter upon reservation life. We have no authentic study of them until well along in the transition period when whiskey and trade had already debauched their native ideals. During the era of Reconstruction, they modified their customs and beliefs continually, creating a singular admixture of Christian with pagan superstitions and in addition to the old folklore of disguised Bible stories under an Indian aspect. Even their music shows the influence of the Catholic chants. Most of the material collected by modern observers is necessarily of this promiscuous character. It is noteworthy that the first effect of contact with the whites was an increase of cruelty and barbarity, an intensifying of the dark shadows in the picture. In this manner, the Sundance of the Plains Indian, the most important of their public ceremonials, was abused and perverted until it became a horrible exhibition of barbarism and was eventually prohibited by the government. In the old days, when a Sioux warrior found himself in the very jaws of destruction, he might offer a prayer to his father, the son, to prolong its life. If rescued from imminent danger, he must acknowledge the divine favor by making a Sundance, according to the vow embraced in his prayer, in which he declared that he did not fear torture or death, but asked life only for the sake of those who loved him. Thus the physical ordeal was the fulfillment of a vow and a sort of atonement for what might otherwise appear to be reprehensible weakness in the face of death. It was in the nature of confession and thank-offering to the great mystery through the physical parent, the son, and did not embrace a prayer for future favors. The ceremonies usually took place from six months to a year after the making of the vow in order to admit of suitable preparation, always in midsummer and before a large and imposing gathering. They naturally included the making of a feast and the giving away of much savage wealth in honor of the occasion, although these were no essential part of the religious rite. When the day came to procure the pole, it was brought in by a party of warriors headed by some man of distinction. The tree selected was six to eight inches in diameter at the base and twenty to twenty-five feet high. It was chosen and felled with some solemnity, including the ceremony of the filled pipe, and was carried in the fashion of a litter symbolizing the body of the man who made the dance. A solitary teepee was pitched on a level spot at some distance from the village and the pole raised near at hand with the same ceremony in the center of the circular enclosure of fresh-cut boughs. Meanwhile, one of the most noted of our old men had carved out of rawhide, or later of wood, two figures, usually those of a man and a buffalo. Sometimes the figure of a bird, supposed to represent the thunder, was substituted for the buffalo. It was customary to paint the man red and the animal black, and each was suspended from one end of the crossbar, which was securely tied two feet from the top of the pole. I have never been able to determine that this cross had any significance. It was probably nothing more than a dramatic coincidence that surmounted the Sundance pole with the symbol of Christianity. 
The paint indicated that the man who was about to give thanks publicly had been potentially dead but was allowed to live by the mysterious favor and interference of the giver of life. The buffalo hung opposite the image of his own body in death because it was the support of his physical self and a leading figure in legendary lore. Following the same line of thought, when he emerged from the solitary lodge of preparation and approached the pole to dance, nude save for his breech-clout and moccasins, his hair loosened and daubed with clay, he must drag after him a buffalo skull, representing the grave from which he had escaped. The dancer was cut or sacrificed on the chest, sufficient to draw blood and cause pain, the natural accompaniments of his figurative death. He took his position opposite the singers, facing the pole and dragging the skull by leather thongs which were merely fastened about his shoulders. During a later period, incisions were made in the breast or back, sometimes both, through which wooden skewers were drawn and secured by lariats to the pole or to the skulls. Thus he danced without intermission for a day and a night, or even longer, ever gazing at the sun in the daytime and blowing from time to time a sacred whistle made from the bone of a goose's wing. In recent times, this rite was exaggerated and distorted into a mere ghastly display of physical strength and endurance under torture, almost on a level with the Caucasian institution of the bullfight or the yet more modern prize ring. Moreover, instead of an atonement or thank-offering, it became the accompaniment of a prayer for success in war or in a raid upon the horses of the enemy. The number of dancers was increased, and they were made to hang suspended from the pole by their own flesh, which they must break loose before being released. I will remember the comments in our own home upon the passing of this simple but impressive ceremony, and its loss of all meaning and propriety under the demoralizing additions which were some of the fruits of early contact with the white man. Perhaps the most remarkable organization ever known among American Indians, that of the Grand Medicine Lodge, was apparently an indirect result of the labors of early Jesuit missionaries. In it, Caucasian ideas are easily recognizable, and it seems reasonable to suppose that its founders desired to establish an order that would successfully resist the encroachments of the black robes. However that may be, it is an unquestionable fact that the only religious leaders of any note who have arisen among native tribes since the advent of the white men, the Shawnee prophet in 1762 and the half-breed prophet of the ghost dance in 1890, both founded their claims or prophecies upon the gospel story. Thus, in each case, an Indian religious revival or craze, though more or less threatening to the invader, was of distinctively alien origin. The Medicine Lodge originated among the Algonquin tribe and extended gradually through its branches, finally affecting the Sioux of the Mississippi Valley and forming a strong bulwark against the works of the pioneer missionaries who secured, indeed, scarcely any converts until after the outbreak of 1862 when subjection, starvation, and imprisonment turned our broken-hearted people to accept Christianity, which seemed to offer them the only gleam of kindness or hope. The order was a secret one, and in some respects not unlike the Freemasons, being a union or affiliation of a number of lodges, each with its distinctive songs and medicines. Leadership was an order of seniority and degrees, which could only be obtained by merit, and women were admitted to membership upon equal terms, with the possibility of attaining to the highest honors. No person might become a member unless his moral standing was excellent. All candidates remained on probation for one or two years, and murderers and adulterers were expelled. The commandments promulgated by this order were essentially the same as the Mosaic Ten, so that it exerted a distinct moral influence in addition to its ostensible object 
which was instruction in the secrets of legitimate medicine. In this society, the uses of all curative roots and herbs known to us were taught exhaustively and practiced mainly by the old, the younger members being in training to fill the places of those who passed away. My grandmother was a well-known and successful practitioner, and both my mother and father were members but did not practice. A medicine or mystery feast was not a public affair, as members only were eligible, and upon these occasions all the medicine bags and totems of the various lodges were displayed and their peculiar medicine songs were sung. The food was only partaken of by invited guests and not by the hosts or lodge making the feast. The grand medicine dance was given on the occasion of initiating those candidates who had finished their probation, a sufficient number of whom were designated to take the places of those who had died since the last meeting. Invitations were sent out in the form of small bundles of tobacco. Two very large teepees were pitched facing one another, a hundred feet apart, half open, and connected by a roofless hall or colonnade of fresh-cut boughs. One of these lodges was for the society giving the dance and the novices. The other was occupied by the soldiers whose duty it was to distribute the refreshments and to keep order among the spectators. They were selected from among the best and bravest warriors of the tribe. The preparations being complete, and the members of each lodge garbed and painted according to their rituals, they entered the hall separately in single file, led by their oldest man or great chief. Standing before the soldier's lodge, facing the setting sun, their chief addressed the great mystery directly in a few words, after which all extending the right arm horizontally from the shoulder with open palm, sang a short invocation in unison, ending with a deep, Eee, ho, ho, ho. This performance, which was really impressive, was repeated in front of the headquarters lodge facing the rising sun, after which each lodge took its assigned place, and the songs and dances followed in regular order. The closing ceremony, which was intensely dramatic in its character, was the initiation of the novices, who had received their final preparation on the night before. They were now led out in front of the headquarters lodge and placed in a kneeling position upon a carpet of rich robes and furs, the men upon the right hand, stripped and painted black, with a round spot of red just above the heart, while the women dressed in their best were arranged upon the left. Both sexes wore the hair loose, as if in mourning or expectation of death. An equal number of grand medicine men, each of whom was especially appointed to one of the novices, faced them at a distance of half the length of the hall, or perhaps fifty feet. After silent prayer, each medicine man in turn addressed himself to his charge, exhorting him to observe all the rules of the order under the eye of the mysterious one, and instructing him in his duty toward his fellow man and toward the ruler of life. All then assumed an attitude of superb power and dignity, crouching slightly as if about to spring forward in a foot race, and grasping their medicine bags firmly in both hands. Swinging their arms forward at the same moment, they uttered their guttural, Yo, ho, 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 in perfect unison and with startling effect. In the midst of a breathless silence, they took a step forward, then another, and another, ending a rod or so from the row of kneeling victims, with a mighty swing of the sacred bags that would seem to project all their mystic power into the bodies of the initiates. Instantly, they all fell forward, apparently lifeless. With this thrilling climax, the drums were vigorously pounded, and the dance began again with energy. After a few turns had been taken about the prostrate bodies of the new members, covering them with fine robes and other garments which were later to be distributed as gifts, they were permitted to come to life and to join in the final dance. 
The whole performance was clearly symbolic of death and resurrection. While I cannot suppose that this elaborate ritual, with its use of public and audible prayer, of public exhortation or sermon, and other Caucasian features, was practiced before comparatively modern times, there is no doubt that it was conscientiously believed in by its members, and for a time regarded with reverence by the people. But at a later period it became still further demoralized and fell under suspicion of witchcraft. There is no doubt that the Indian held medicine close to spiritual things, but in this also he has been much misunderstood. In fact, everything that he held sacred is indiscriminately called medicine in the sense of mystery or magic. As a doctor, he was originally very adroit and often successful. He employed only healing bark, roots, and leaves with those properties he was familiar, using them in the form of a distillation or tea, and always singly. The stomach or internal bath was a valuable discovery of his, and the vapor or Turkish bath was in general use. He could set a broken bone with fair success, but never practiced surgery in any form. In addition to all this, the medicine man possessed much personal magnetism and authority, and in his treatment often sought to reestablish the equilibrium of the patient through mental or spiritual influences, a sort of primitive psychotherapy. The Sioux word for the healing art is wapie, which literally means readjusting or making anew. Bejihuta, literally root, means medicine, and wakan signifies spirit or mystery. Thus, the three ideas, while sometimes associated, were carefully distinguished. It is important to remember that in the old days the medicine man received no payment for his services, which were of the nature of an honorable function or office. When the idea of payment and barter was introduced among us and valuable presents or fees began to be demanded for treating the sick, the ensuing greed and rivalry led to many demoralizing practices, and in time to the rise of the modern conjurer, who is generally a fraud and trickster of the grossest kind. It is fortunate that his day is practically over. Ever seeking to establish spiritual comradeship with the animal creation, the Indian adopted this or that animal as his totem, the emblematic device of his society, family, or clan. It is probable that the creature chosen was the traditional ancestress, as we are told that the first man had many wives among the animal people. The sacred beast, bird, or reptile represented by its stuffed skin or by a rude painting was treated with reverence and carried into battle to ensure the guardianship of the spirits. The symbolic attribute of beaver or bear or tortoise such as wisdom, cunning, courage, and the like was supposed to be mysteriously conferred upon the wearer of the badge. The totem or charm used in medicine was ordinarily that of the medicine lodge to which the practitioner belonged, though there were some great men who boasted a special revelation. There are two ceremonial usages which, so far as I have been able to ascertain, were universal among American Indians and apparently fundamental. These have already been referred to as the Anipi, or vapor bath, and the Chanduhupa, Ujapi, or ceremonial of the pipe. In our Siouan legends and traditions, these two are preeminent as handed down from the most ancient time and persistent to the last. In our creation myth or story of the first man, the vapor bath was the magic used by the one who was first created to give life to the dead bones of his younger brother, who had been slain by the monsters of the deep. Upon the shore of the great water he dug two round holes, over one of which he built a low enclosure of fragrant cedar boughs, and here he gathered together the bones of his brother. In the other pit he made a fire and heated four round stones, which he rolled one by one into the lodge of boughs. 
Having closed every aperture save one, he sang a mystic chant while he thrust in his arm and sprinkled water upon the stones with a bunch of sage. Immediately steam rose, and as the legend says, there was an appearance of life. A second time he sprinkled water, and the dry bones rattled together. The third time he seemed to hear soft singing from within the lodge, and the fourth time a voice exclaimed, Brother, let me out. It should be noted that the number four is the magic or sacred number of the Indian. This story gives the traditional origin of the Inipi, which has ever since been deemed essential to the Indian's efforts to purify and recreate his spirit. It is used both by the doctor and by his patient. Every man must enter the cleansing bath and take the cold plunge which follows when preparing for any spiritual crisis, for possible death, or imminent danger. Not only the Inipi itself, but everything used in connection with the mysterious event, the aromatic cedar and sage, the water, and especially the water-worn boulders, are regarded as sacred, or at least adapted to a spiritual use. For the rock we have a special reverent name, Tunkan, a contraction of the Sioux word for grandfather. The natural boulder enters into many of our solemn ceremonials, such as the rain dance and the feast of virgins. The lone hunter and warrior reverently holds up his pipe to Tunkan in solitary commemoration of a miracle which to him is as authentic and holy as the raising of Lazarus to the devout Christian. There is legend that the first man fell sick and was taught by his elder brother the ceremonial use of the pipe in a prayer to the spirits for ease and relief. This simple ceremony is the commonest daily expression of thanks or grace, as well as an oath of loyalty and good faith when the warrior goes forth upon some perilous enterprise, and it enters even into his hambiday or solitary prayer ascending as rising vapor or incense to the Father of Spirits. In all the war ceremonies and in medicine, a special pipe is used, but at home or on the hunt, the warrior employs his own. The pulverized weed is mixed with aromatic bark of the red willow or pressed lightly into the bowl of the long stone pipe. The worshiper lights it gravely and takes a whiff or two, then standing erect, he holds it silently towards the sun, our father, and toward the earth, our mother. There are modern variations, as holding the pipe to the four winds, the fire, water, rock, and other elements or objects of reverence. There are many religious festivals which are local and special in character, embodying a prayer for success in hunting or warfare, or for rain and bountiful harvests. But these too are the sacraments of our religion. For baptism we substitute the anipi, the purification by vapor, and in our Holy Communion we partake of the soothing incense of tobacco in the stead of bread and wine. End of chapter 3